This is Masonic Muscle, and this is an exercise in speculation and critical thinking. We are going to strengthen your mental muscle. Today's guest is Vic Ropak, who is the Assistant Grand Lecturer of California Grand Lodge Division 8. He is effectively in charge of 30 lodges or more. I think it's the biggest, it is the biggest county, as he confirmed to me, in the world. Uh, Vic has been a Mason for 34 years and continues to serve Freemasonry today. We'll be talking about quite a number of things. Vic's upbringing, his playing sports, working in law enforcement, how he became a Mason, seatbelts. He mentioned something about seatbelts, so I got to put it in there. He wants to talk about seatbelts. The eight steps to excellence, where Freemasonry is headed, how we can improve the Masonic experience, and a whole lot more. Vic, welcome to the program. Thank you, Caesar. I'm glad to be here this afternoon. Yeah, uh, I mentioned just a little bit about you because I wanted you to tell us just a little bit of your background, even though I have it here because it's interesting. And because of uh, a World War II influence of uh, men that served in the war, especially your father and the influence that it had on you and your community. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, my, my dad was in the army in World War II and they were being uh, shipping out of San Francisco. Well, he was uh, stationed in uh, Sedalia Army Base in Missouri. And when they left for the uh, West Coast to ship out to the Pacific, there was four feet of snow on the ground and they were wearing parkas. And as the troop train got through the Santa Ana Canyon, they were down to t-shirts. And my dad made a vow to himself right then, if he survived, he was moving the family to Southern California and to get away from the snow. And uh, when things were over, that's what my dad was able to do. Uh, my parents, my dad was a steel worker, worked at Kaiser Steel. My mom was a registered nurse. And when she started with Kaiser Hospital, it was a six bed clinic at the steel mill. And she was there when they built and opened the first hospital in uh, Fontana. So, Kind of a long history for that area, uh, Bloomington, California, uh, San Bernardino County. There, um, I was, I was a fortunate to grow up. I think my upbringing was a lot of uh, like uh, uh, Leave It to Beaver, uh, Norman Rockwell, uh, lots of uh, nuclear families. Uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, almost ninety, probably ninety-five percent of the dads were World War II vets. 95% um, of them worked at Kaiser Steel, and it was really a, an extended family. When you were out and you went to play, if it was lunchtime, wherever you were, a mother, uh, that mother of that house would call all the kids in. You'd have Kool-Aid and a sandwich of some sort, and she fed everybody, and the next day, wherever you were, that mom fed everybody. And uh, by the same token, all those dads were fathers to you. If you were out doing something in the street you shouldn't have done, one of them would come up and give you a gentle uh, tap on the side of the head and remind you that that was the wrong thing to do. And you prayed that they didn't call your dad because then you would get it again for one for doing something wrong and two for embarrassing the family name. So uh, I guess it was a, a fortunate time to grow up a different world than we see today, I think, as far as the strengths of the family. Um, my parents were both uh, youth leaders. My mom was a leader of uh, Cub Scouts and Girl Scouts. My dad was a, was a male leader for Girl Scouts, but he was also a scout master. And uh, 
we went on a 65 mile hike with about uh, eight other Boy Scouts. My dad was one of the two leaders that put himself through that for the boys to hike through the high Sierras. Uh, you look back at time and look at that and say, he really showed what it was like to be a good parent. I think that example was, uh, was really well done. Um, I became an Eagle Scout in Boy Scouts and a lot of that because of the influence of my dad saying, if you're gonna do something, you do it well. And you, if you start something, you finish it. And just that sort of, that sort of attitude. Um, I was in private school the first uh, six years of my life, but uh, being a big kid, my parents recognized that I'd probably be involved in sports. So they let me move to the <laughs> public school and uh, went on to public high school. And uh, I was an all-conference football player for two years. I graduated upper 2% of my high school and was able to get a college scholarship to UCR when they had a football program to play football. Um, I was an offensive tackle and you don't find many more team players than an offensive tackle. The only time your name is called is if you make a mistake. So yeah, you toil every play, you hit somebody and somebody hits you. It's not a lot of glory and a lot of work, but you learn to work together and the importance of teamwork. Um, after, well, well, while I was still at college on my 21st birthday, uh, I became a police officer and uh, worked for the uh, Riverside Police Department for 22 years before I was injured on duty and had to medically retire. And I did patrol. I was a field training officer, evidence technician. Uh, I was a detective for five years, two years in homicide, which uh, I found it tremendously challenging and, and exciting what I really like to do. I made sergeant. I spent about uh, 10 years as a sergeant, was in patrol, but I also was in uh, the bike patrol commander, field training officer commander, brought the 911 system into the city of Riverside and combined police, fire, and ambulance dispatch into one center, uh, worked vice narcotics for three years, wrote several manuals while I was on light duty, cadet program, bicycle law enforcement, communications, did a lot of staff work, was an adjutant for the patrol commander. And due to the four operations on my left knee, I wound up medically retiring. Um, I was the officer of the year for the Riverside Police Department. Uh, when I, after I retired, when I'd gone to college, I had taken all the classes to get an elementary teaching credential except the student teaching. And as a young man, I wasn't sure which way my career was going to go. But as I got closer and closer to graduating from college, I looked at the pay scales and policemen made a lot more than teachers. So I became a police officer. But once I was injured, the city had to retrain me and I became a uh, elementary school teacher. And I taught elementary school for another 15 years at various grades and teaching gate and uh, language learners and that sort of thing that were needed. And I was one of those people who, when a boy needed a male teacher, I was one of the ones that got a lot of the discipline problems because they needed a male that, uh, an example in their lives and someone who could kind of give them a guiding hand in their lives. And so, so let me stop you right there, Vic, because that right there, all of that combined, all of a sudden you find yourself with Freemasonry and you find yourself all of a sudden uh, becoming a Mason. 
but I, I'm hearing hierarchy. I'm hearing structured family. I'm hearing values, family values, strong morals, strong family values from the World War II vets and the mothers. Because I had something similar. I didn't have World War II veteran fathers, but um, in Mexico, uh, the Revolutionary War, I had family from that. And so there was a strict hierarchy. There was morals. There was ethical, you know, there was ethics principles. And so everybody knew what time it was. So now you're talking about you're retired, you got retrained, you're in school, and you're being left in charge of the disciplinary uh, problem children of the schools. How um, I want to ask you something, and maybe you can answer after you tell us how you got involved with Freemasonry, but I'll pose the question now. How, how you're you're a teacher and you're being left in charge with disciplinary children and within Freemasonry, there are disciplinary children, so to speak. How did you translate that over? Like when you started becoming an officer in the lodge and then the master and now, you know, inspector and now AGL, how, how did that come about? And do you still apply some of the lessons that you learned disciplining children versus disciplinary adults or children masquerading as adults within a lodge <laughs> so go ahead and tell us how you got involved in masonry because that's interesting okay well um i was on the police department and uh 1983 i believe or probably 83 and uh one of my good friends asked me says hey what do you know about the masons and i said well i know that they are you know, a, a, a kind of worldwide fraternity for men, but I don't know a whole lot more about it than they're, they're a fraternity for men. And uh, my friend said, hey, well, Skip is going to take me out to lunch and, and tell me about Masons. You know, he's a member of the local lodge here. And if you'd like, I'll get him to invite you. We'll make him buy lunch for the both of us and tell us, you know, <laughs> a little about Masonry. Yeah. So, I, you know, I went to lunch and I, I listened to what uh, what this gentleman had to say. Um, it kind of an, an interesting one of the things he, he said he said what would you do if someone stopped by your house and asked for directions and I said well I'd tell them how to get where they wanted to go and he said that's true he said we'd expect that but if it was a brother mason you'd invite him in for a cup of coffee hmm. you might drive him over to make sure he got there you would see if he needed anything else there's any other help he needed anything you could do to help him and he said so I mean, that's kind of a little bit of the difference between how Masons treat each other and how people treat each other in general. And I thought, well, that's really, that's, that was an interesting idea. So I went home after that day at the end of my shift and I told my wife, I said, you know, hon, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a Mason. What do you think about that? And I had no, no idea before this conversation. She told me, well, my grandfather was a Mason. My uncle is a Mason. And it's about time you became a Mason. Go join the lodge. <laughs> and uh, that kind of uh, it's how I got involved in masonry. I, I told Caesar I had only been in my lodge one time before I went to receive my first degree. The lodge had been burglarized, and it was on. It wasn't on. I wasn't on that beat, but I was the next one over. But I think I went over to help with fingerprints or something. And the next time I went, I joined the lodge. <laughs> um, had, had a lot of uh, good experiences. Uh, when we were working on proficiencies, there were five uh, detectives that we went through the lodge together. And our lieutenant turned out was also a, 
a member of the lodge. So on our coffee break, we'd go into his office and shut the door and the five of us would practice our proficiencies until we were letter perfect to, uh, to return those in the lodge. So it was uh, a very good bonding experience and a learning experience. And there was, in those days, there was only the traditional return. So you had to uh, learn a little bit more. And I think because you did that, you learn more, um, you internalize more of those Masonic principles, I think, that, uh, that you get by doing that. You know, they always say you get out of it what you put into it. And putting in that work on the proficiency, I think, helped us learn a lot. Also, the uh, peer pressure of if you did anything, if you missed a word, your buddies were going to be on your back. So the, the standard, the standard was high. The, the standard was high in your lodge as far as, as far as proficiency and performing well. Oh, yes. And we, okay. we, in fact, you would have, you had your own coach who was responsible for helping you through the proficiency, but then they had a head coach that you had to go to a uh, past master and the head, the head officer's coach, you had to be passed by him before you would be allowed to return it in lodge. So uh, ritual excellence and any proficiency, any of that had to be done at a very high level for the lodge to accept it. So you, you took your degrees and then you had a, like a hiatus, right? Like a 10 year hiatus until you came back because of some emergency. And can you tell us about that? Right, well, um, I, was, I was promoted away from detective back to sergeant. Mm -hmm. And so you wind up working nights and lodge meets at night and uh, my lodge meets on wednesday night but that's a night that you you usually wind up working so for a long time almost 10 years i'm sure i was away from the lodge but i paid my dues um i read the trestle board uh i still you know could would read my my blue book sit down and have a cup of coffee and read through it just to kind of refresh my memory a little bit and I was sitting down looking at a trestle board and the master had called for a uh, summons meeting. And he kind of put down, there had been, a, there had been an, an incident happened and a couple of officers had, had resigned and uh, the lodge was in need of help. And I didn't really know what they could do to me if I didn't go to the summons meeting, <laughs> but it was, I was kind of going, you know what? I got the time, it's a Wednesday night. I'm not doing anything, I'm gonna go. So I put on a suit and I went down to the lodge and I, I listened to the master who at the time was John Shannon that if some of you know him, he's an inspector at large now in our division. Yeah. And he was the master and he told he needed, he needed officers to help the lodge. And I talked to him and I said, well, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of interested in doing this. I wanna go home and talk to my wife a little bit about it. But I went home and talked to my wife and I told her, I said, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I have some time now. Um, that I could devote to the lodge and they need help and I'd like to help them. And my wife was, you know, go right ahead. I think that's terrific, you know? And so I went back and I talked to John and I said, well, what do you need most? And he said, well, I need a senior deacon and a junior warden. I said, okay, well, what do you need the worst? And he said, I need a junior warden. So I said, okay, I will do it. And in two months, I went from not having been at a lodge meeting for about 10 years and two months I qualified as junior warden and uh, kind of went up the chairs from there. And so now you're, you're, you're in the grind, right? Uh, a lot of people call it in the grind because once you uh, accept an office like that, next thing you know, the expectations are that you're going to 
uh, you know, advance. Unless you tell them, hey, I can't advance. The expectation is you're going to sit in that chair and you're going to advance the next year. So now you're junior warden, senior warden, master, master, master. You take a year off, you come back, you're secretary, secretary, you're master again. And then you begin to serve as inspector. And then uh, now you're AGL. Tell me some of the things, some of the challenges and problems that you began to face when you took these leadership roles, because when you take on a leadership role, just because it's in a Masonic lodge doesn't mean that it's all gravy and all roses. You're going to be confronted with different personalities. You're going to be confronted with different uh, dynamics, uh, people wanting to leave for whatever reason, things aren't clear to them. I don't know. But what were some of the challenges that you faced? Some of the problems that, that you said, you know what, I got to address this and I got to take care of it. And how did you take care of it? Just give me one or two examples of that. Well, I think, I think that a big part of, of leadership is leading by example. If, if you say, okay, we're gonna have, uh, we're going to OSI and it starts at seven o'clock. Well, I'm gonna be at OSI about 6.30. It's just my, the way I was brought up on time is late. But you know, I think a lot of leadership is by example and showing your commitment that, hey, if I'm going to be here, then we all need to be here. And, uh, you, you know, yeah, things, things came up. And fortunately for me, I had a core of uh, past masters that were just a tremendous, tremendous help. I had, you know, I'd have somebody get to junior warden and drop out of the line. But I'd have a past master that I could, I could call him up and say, Chuck, I hate to do this, but I really need a junior warden. And he said, okay, I've got it. He, and, you know, he would do that for me. And the, that resource was so, so valuable to me that we had to work through getting guys that took, you know, I was master three years in a row because I had to rebuild the line. And uh, those past masters were a big success, a big help. One of the things I did is, is I think I set the expectations for my officers that I told them that if you can't be there for a meeting, that's not my responsibility. That's your responsibility. And if you're going to be missing, you need to get your replacement. You may call me and tell me who it is, that I'll know he's qualified, but that's your responsibility as your chair, and it's not the master's responsibility. And I think it built a lot of closeness between the other officers in the district because the officers in the other districts knew hey, if I can't make it, I can call Fred and Fred will fill in for me for that night. I have my kids got a performance at school or something. And then my officers knew if they couldn't make it, they could call one of the other lodgers to do that. But uh, I think that expectations, letting them know from the start, this isn't meant to be easy. You're going to have to put in the time and the effort. And, you know, we look for excellence. When, when I was a school teacher, I had a, a poster in my room and it says, it said, said, excellence is a journey. It's not a location. And I think that that was always striving for excellence and showing uh, if we're doing a degree, I'm going to strive for excellence. And as you work through ritual with, if you work with people who are good at ritual, it brings everybody's caliber of work up because they want to do as well as those other guys are doing. They don't want to be the one that, that you know, held everybody down. 
And I think that, you know, striving for excellence, letting people know the expectations, uh, not saying, hey, this is going to be easy. You don't have to do anything. It'll, it's like falling off a log. That's not true. You have a commitment and you have to work at it. And think, um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Vic. I, so I think that's, that's the thing about leadership. Leadership is, uh, you know, setting an example, setting high standards, and then helping those if they need help. Say, hey, you need help with the ritual? I'll be over at your house. Let's work on it. You know, maybe so, if I put the coffee on, we'll get through it. So, I mean, you, see, you said some key concepts that I think is lost in many lodges because we're talking about our fraternity and we're talking about our lodges. And that those, uh, those key concepts, number one, you had time, but you were going to be efficient with it. Number two, leading by example, show up on time. These are the things that you were taught growing up and they were instilled in you. And so when you became the le leader of a lodge and you worked your way up to become the leader of the lodge, it was, you know, it was second nature to you and you instill that in the officers, but there's many even though in Freemasonry, you're getting the training to become a leader, many people take the easy way and do the exact opposite. Oh, this is going to be easy. I just needed to do this. And so there's no expectations put forward and there's no real goal. And so what happens? The lodge begins to flounder and they begin to blame Freemasonry overall, um, which, you know, that's a whole different topic. But the examples that you're giving are strong examples of how to do this and being honest a leader is being honest hey it's not going to be easy some of this is going to require more time more of your time some of this is going to require more of your dedication and more discipline especially with the ritual we need people that are going to be ritually ritualistically qualified and will perform well and if you can you gotta find your replacement and let me know that's part of you being trained now as a leader you're you're being you're having these these uh these rules instilled in you over and over and over again which now leads me to begin to ask so even though in your lodge and in your experience this is how you took care of things as you became district inspector and now agl you begin to see other problems manifest in lodges and you begin to see how these group of men either address these issues or not right some of them meet them head on and some of them run away and and they at, not that they like it, but, but they just don't want to make the commitment, right? And this is where the eight steps of excellence comes in. We were talking about this earlier. And the eight steps, uh, when, I, when I told you about them, you looked them up and then you, you read them and you're like, you know, it was brilliant. You said, it's common sense. The eight steps of excellence are common sense. But then I asked you, then why don't people, you know, want to do them? Why don't people want to do them to help? improve the Masonic experience? Uh, can't I, obviously, I can't speak for everyone. I think that we've seen some changes in society, uh, the way people have been raised and stuff. Uh, look, look at commitment. I mean, you know, when, when I was growing up, the idea was you were gonna get a job, odds are you were gonna spend most of your life at that job own a home, build, have, build a family, build a life, and, you know, kind of stay pretty stable. And now, you know, the expectation is that, like the millennials expect to have eight to 10 jobs in their life, hmm. uh, going to move a lot, going to be mobile. And uh, I don't think that commitment has been as stressed 
as it was in years in the past. And if we want to build that that culture back in, we have to demonstrate it, and we have to teach it, and we have to reinforce it. Um, yeah, I tell my inspectors that I can teach anybody how to do ritual, how to teach ritual, but the personal contacts that we have with people are probably the most important thing in masonry. Um, how you relate to people, and this goes for the members of the lodge, it goes for the officers of the lodge, it goes for inspectors, grand lodge officers, how you can relate to people, how you can share yourself and your values with them. And you know, leadership has, has been defined once upon a time as saying that the art of getting people to, to do what you want them to do and have them think it was their idea. Well, some of that comes from that, that if, if you don't teach them, if you don't show them the expectations, if you don't show them a path to get there, you're kind of setting themselves, themselves and you up for failure. That you have to spend, you have to be able to have those relationships. Goes within the lodge, goes within relationships with your wife, you know, I, you, you know, all those personal things. And you know, when we look at personal responsibility, I used to teach teach kids when I was in the FTO program on the police department. There's three important phrases that work in most situations. You're right. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. <laughs> And yeah. those can be applied to a lot of situations yeah. that, to uh, kind of uh, de-escalate situations. Uh, and you know, it's funny that you say that because uh, you know, you know I, I was in law enforcement too as correctional officer and I also had to be medically retired due to a knee injury. So we have something in common there. And, uh, but when I was working in there, I would jokingly tell the inmates the same thing, what you just said right now. You know, you're right. I'm sorry. You know, it'll never happen again. You know, and it, it, we'd go away laughing, but it de-escalated everything. It and, and, but the problem still remains, right? Especially if it's the individual, but for the moment it de-escalated everything. And then they, they realized that you're listening and they realize that, okay, he gets well, it. Let me, let me, let me see where I, what I can do to change the situation. So this doesn't happen again. And that's, I think that, Leaders have to show, have empathy to be able to understand, you know, because you may have, it's very, you know, I, I don't have any doubt that there are people who say, I really want to advance, but I need a little more time. Okay, well then, you know, you have to give them a little more time and a little more support and that sort of thing. Just uh, people learn differently at different speeds and through different modalities and you know, we just have to be able to support these guys, bringing them up, uh, especially for the officers. And I think that it seems like senior deacon seems to be one of those real crucial. Uh, yeah, crucial it's the pivot chairs. point. Because yeah. It's the first real chance to demonstrate their ritual ability. And, you know, we, we, I think there was a time when many people, because of their occupations, came up with uh, management experience. Things like auditing and the books and budgeting and those sorts of things. But uh, today, I think a lot of people aren't experienced at that. So there's just more things that we have to help train them at, those skills that they need as a leader. 
did you make, did you stay within your budget? If you didn't, what happened? What was the problem with that? How will we address that in future years? And have, uh, when, when, when I was a master, when we did the budget for the lodge, we had a meeting. We had the officers of the lodge the, the, and the past masters. And we would talk about, this is what we would like to do and look at their experience and say, uh, yeah, I think we can do that. Or you could probably do that, but you need to miss that landmine right there and go around that. To get to that point, you probably need to go this way. And that mentoring, you know, we mentor the new candidates, the officers, the master, the past masters have to mentor those new officers as well. Right. Help them with the skills that they don't, they didn't necessarily come with just because of a different uh, time and upbringing and employment history. And we're, we're taking on a whole new, what you're saying is that this is a whole new animal and the values and the principles, uh, kids coming, uh, being raised in broken homes. Uh, all of a sudden they're looking for a male, you know, a figure, uh, you know, a father figure. And if they don't, some go and find it in the military, but then all of a sudden they hear about Freemasonry is just for men. And, and they join, you know, the lodge thinking that they're going to get their, father figure influence in there. And if they go into a lot of dysfunctional, you know, I mean, I think we're all dysfunctional up to a certain point, but if there's strong enough leadership, he sees the dynamics and he sees how, how he can apply this to his life right now. He's learning, he's learning something valuable. And, and, it, but sometimes it's hard to get through to that because they got to trust you. You got to trust them and, and then allow that. But let's switch gears a little bit here. And let me ask you something on you because you're 34 year Mason, you've got a ton of experience, especially these last 10, uh, 15 years and, and you're in AGL and we're, you know, we became speculative Masons long ago, right? We were both operative and at one, we were operative at one point in our history and then we became operative and speculative. And then now we're just speculative. And so the question is how often do you speculate on where Freemasonry came from? What are the origins of Freemasonry? Do you have a theory of, of where our fraternity possibly could have come from? I, I like the stories that we came from the Knights Templars and going that far back. I mean, you know, nice stories, but I've never really read anything that I would say was, uh, concrete, absolute, we found this written in stone. So it's nice to say we had a lot of the same values. There's no doubt of that. And there are a lot of societies that um, were based on, on, on some similar values. Um, I think that the idea that uh, we came from the stone, the Stonemasons Guild back in the you know, 1600s in, in, in England, uh, Europe, that kind of thing, you know, I think that there's probably an awful lot of evidence that points to that sort of origins because of the implements we use to illustrate the virtues and that sort of thing. Uh, I said, so I, you know, I, I don't have any doubt that we can trace back into the 1600s with no problems. I would love it if someone could say, hey, scholarly, we can show that we went much farther back, but you know, I'm sure we can go at least that far. From from what I've read, I I haven't seen anything that maybe say, aha, there's no doubt that we were Knight Templars in in Jerusalem guarding yeah. the city. 
Yeah. And in regards to that, because um, I recently had Jerry L. Smith, you know, the past master of, uh, of uh, Southern California Research Lodge, you know, who better to ask, right? These guys yeah. use research. And he had something similar to say that, that, that you just said, and he brought up the Knights Templars and he said, but he said something very interesting that I hadn't thought about. And he says, if the Knights Templars at the end of their illustrious, you know, uh, uh, history, they got disbanded, they were on the run, you know, the king and the Pope of the time were after them. They wanted to uh, arrest every, every single one of them. It, even though, even though the, the organization was disbanded, the surviving members, they, they took off and some of them went to Spain and they went to other countries where they can, because they were still monks. They were warrior monks. They were Knights Templars. They were warrior monks. So they wanted to continue to be a monk in some monastery or in some organization, whether they became Benedictine monks or, you know, uh, Cistercian monks or Augustinian monks, whatever, Franciscan. But he said, if they were on the run and they continued to meet, then why would you think that we're going to find records of them meeting? Why would they put any evidence down, you know, like a, a lodge meeting where we have the Tyler's register? And yeah, we're actually meeting here, guys. You know, here it is. And he made a great point. He says, I really appreciate the historians who, who are demanding this physical evidence and this documented proof, but the Knights Templars were on the run. They were not going to write anything down to perjure themselves, you know, and, and. Well, yeah, wind up being executed. You yeah. Know, you, I look at that a little bit too, like the uh, Freemasons in Germany while the Nazis were there. Right. You know, it, it was illegal to become a Freemason and all the, all the lodges were closed and the, the books were burned and destroyed. But I think that's one of the reasons that committing the, excuse me, ritual to memory is so important. You can burn all the books, you can throw everything away, but I still know in my mind what those things are. And, you know, when you look at the, uh, the forget-me-nots, that the Masons in, in, in Nazi Germany planted so other Masons would see the little forget-me-not flowers and go. Yeah, other. there it is. Interesting tale. Anyway, but yeah, there's no doubt that, that they were had to hide because they were going to get killed pretty regular. Yeah. It was just an interesting uh, point of view. And uh, like yourself, you know, Jerry Al, that, that's, his, that's his area. And you as a detective, right, you're going you're gonna to begin to trace this thing back using your, your skills. So let me ask you something connected to that. And that is, obviously, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there of all kinds of, you know, from everything, but I'm talking specifically Masonic, which what is a Masonic conspiracy theory that, you know, that it really resonates with you? Not that it's true, but you, you said, you know what, I've heard it, I like it, and this is why. <laughs> well, I, I think... Uh... One of, one of my favorite things is that there, there's a thought that the Masons are a secret society that we're going to rule the world, that we've, we've taken over, we control everything. And I tend to tell people, I missed that meeting. Somehow they didn't tell me and invite me to that meeting to say we were going to, uh, to rule the world. You know, that's not really what our function is. And I think because we are a, a secret society, but really a society with some secrets. We don't hide that we're Masons and that sort of thing. Lots of crazy things come up. But <laughs> yeah, that, that 
all the things and and we've caused some of our own problems give you know in the past giving new candidates uh, uh, a little bit of a of a, of a going that we don't do anymore but yet you know things like that that cause those sorts of, of conspiracies uh, about the masons that uh, I think have pretty I've been dispelled but if you go on the internet you know we're still sacrificing goats and yeah you know, well you know it's just uh, personally I've been a, a big conspiracy believer because of all the crooks I've known if there's if there are two of them know a secret there's no secret <laughs> I, I just I tend, tend to think that a lot of those things are just uh, people wanting to have a nice story to tell so so uh, from what I'm gathering is that you do speculate on the origins of Freemasonry and, and you you're kind of uh, okay there's definite evidence that we had some origins and connections to the stone builders guilds of 1600s and 1500s, you know, 1400s. You can even, you can even push it back 1400s. And there's evidence that these stone masons were having some kind of uh, initiation ritual to pass an inner apprentice to a fellow of the craft. They had some kind of ritual. We don't even know how it came about. That's, that's really one of the mysteries of, of Freemasonry. We don't know how it came about. Um, we don't understand why it came about because they're working out there with everybody, but somehow they they felt that there needed to be some kind of ritual to to commemorate the day. And it was always on October 8th back in, uh, in England and in Scotland. October 8th was the day that they would initiate, that they would finally pass the entered apprentice to become a fellow of the craft. Right. And then um, the, the term Freemason, not even now, we don't make Freemasons, we make Masons. Right. Or it's the mysteries of Mason It's not the mystery. So there's all kinds of little things that are still unclear. There's clearly mysteries within the fraternity and it has to do with our origins and how this all started. So it's, it's good to know that you speculate and you speculate quite often. Uh, you know, the thing, the thing is, is it's fun to speculate on the origin but it's kind of like you go know, whatever the origins were i like how we how our organization has evolved you know that that those core values and stuff to me are the the most important thing the other is kind of the the interesting reading uh at night sitting in the easy chair going boy that's that's interesting but uh you know what we stand for and, and what we do in the world i think are the, the real key things um so bringing it back up to the present day as as we know there are and we were talking earlier there are 40,000 masons in california <clears throat> and uh our grand lodge or our state just like many other states have not figured out a way to stop the bleeding you know um and so there is a retention problem there's been a retention problem this is something that's been addressed for um as long as I can remember, as long as I can remember, um, when I joined and I've been a Mason for 19 years, I've been hearing the same thing. We can't retain members. It's a problem. What can we do to change it? But now these numbers come out 40,000. What do you think, uh, we can do you personally, we can do, I mean, cause I know, you know, some of the strategy that Grand Lodge has you being an assistant grand lecturer but you personally, what do we have to do in order to begin to tighten that up and stop the bleeding of members leaving the fraternity and begin to 
you know, uh, not filled up the lodge rooms because masonry, I always felt that is not for everybody. I, I felt that it was, you know, and I get accused of elitism and well, it's a private club. Well, it is because we don't want just anybody. We can't take, you know, a somewhat good man and make him better. We take a good man and make him better. We don't take a rough aster that's cracked and, and you try to mend that stone. No, the stone has to be intact already. So what do you think, you know, has to be done in your opinion? Have you thought about that? You have to have thought about it. Well, I think there's, there are, there's a couple of things that are going to have to be addressed, explored. I think probably the first thing is we have to be sure that the lodges are relevant for the members. Um, and that, that that particular lodge is a good fit for that particular brother. You know, there are lodges that are focused mainly on, on I want to do Masonic charity. We want to be a lodge that, that's really, really involved in charity. And if you have a brother that, that, that he, that's what he wants to do, but he joins a lodge that's interested in doing uh, four barbecues a year, it's not going to be a good fit. Uh, if you have a brother that's really interested in Masonic education, and the lodge doesn't want to do Masonic education, then he's not going to be a good fit. So I think that, that the lodges have to think about what, what do we stand for? What is our goal? What is our focus? And the other thing they need to do is actually talk to the members and say, what is it you are looking for? So we know that in today's world, most of the surveys say Masonic uh, education should become very important to our new members, that they're new, they haven't been around, they've, they've read about masonry on the internet and they're probably wondering where's the dead goat in the parking lot kind of thing. And the uh, education and teaching them of our values and our history, what's the culture of your particular lodge? You know, we, when we talked about earlier, I said, when I joined uh, the, the past, you know, some of the older members and past masters would come up to you and say, kid, if you don't have on a coat and tie, don't come. And the northeast corner of the lodge was past master 50-year members. And if you weren't a past master or 50-year member, if you went and sat up on that corner of the lodge, they would tell you, uh, kid, you got to get a little more gray hair. You know, this, <laughs> the past. And you, you understood that culture of, okay, I understand this is a history, a historical thing in the lodge. I understand that. But we have to teach those things. We have to find out what is important to the members and try to uh, do those things that, that are, you know, not, not ignore everything in the world because just one thing they're interested in, but find out what we can do, uh, what's important to them. Um, you know, there was a one time when Masonic philanthropy was really the big focus of a lot of the lodges. But if you look today, less than 10% of the Masons contribute to the Masonic charities. And, you know, you have to kind of, I, it, it makes me scratch my head and go, why, how did we lose that? The idea of we want to help, uh, the Distress Worthy Brothers Fund has been an excellent um, tool that, that's been used during the, the, uh, the pandemic to say, hey, we, we, this is a way we can directly help all our brothers that are in need of help. 
And that's kind of brought focus back on, on like the charities. But we have to find out how, what's important to the members so that we can become relevant to the members. So what you're talking about, Vic, is uh, the lodge has to find out and create a lodge identity because without that the lodge is going to flounder it's going to be all things to all people and like i was mentioning to you earlier freemasonry cannot be all things to all people and your lodge cannot be all things to all people it has to have a focus otherwise energies will be expended uh frustrations you know people will be frustrated and they're not they're going to join not even knowing what you're about what your focus is and if you don't know what your focus is then how can you tell the the prospective member you know how can you ask them what are you looking for when your laws doesn't even have an identity does not have a focus so it's, it's like it's like a lodge coming up with a one-year and five-year plan where are you going what do you want to accomplish if, if you don't know where you want to go how will you know if you ever got there and i think that 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 one-year plan you know that the master should come up with at the end of the year the officers ought to sit down and look at it and say, did we get there? Did we accomplish what we wanted to do? And then the next incoming master can decide if he wants to follow in that. But those decisions should have been made by all the officers to say, we're going to do this. We're going to follow through with this for three years or four years. That, you know, we're, we all agree that this is going to be a focus of our lodge and we're going to follow it. And I don't think you have to have just one. I mean, you still have to do all the basic Masonic things, but you can have something you really want to emphasize. And that's, you know, that's a good thing for the lodge to develop that culture. In Freemasonry, when people join, they're obviously they're expecting to learn something about the fraternity, not just proficiency. Proficiency is for us to uh, reinforce what was learned in a particular degree. And if you have a good coach, he'll go over some of the symbols and, and some of the, like in, you know, in the first degree, we talk about the three principal tenets and the four cardinal virtues, but there's all kinds of other symbols in the long form lecture that is there. And so that's not the Masonic education that we're talking about. We're talking about, they actually want to know like something we were talking about earlier, uh, your theories on the origins of Freemasonry, where, where that came from and why are they saying that this is the evidence that we have. So people need to, I think a lot of Masons want to know that that uh, or want to be Masons, right? Because they're not Masons yet, but even after they get initiated and it should continue on to the second and third degrees. Then we mentioned about the eight steps of excellence. And when you looked them up, I mentioned it earlier, you said that's common sense, but depending on where the lodge is at, it's going to be difficult to implement all of them. Why is that? Well, I think we have an, a natural resistance to change. Change causes stress. And I think that if you take a lodge that said that, that is having lots of problems and you said, okay, there are eight changes that you have to make this year, might be very difficult for them to do that. Really, it would have to be them deciding, hey, these are changes that we want to make. If you're really going to try to do all eight of them in a short period of time, it might just stress that system out. But to say, okay, well, this year we're going to try to do this. And then next year we have point A taken care of, we're going to add to it point B. And then the next year we have A and B, now we're going to add point C and build on that. 
that at, over a period of time, you'll establish a pretty strong culture for the lodge. Um, my home lodge has always had a reputation for excellent ritual. And I mean, that is, hey, we are going to do good ritual. And uh, just one of their focuses. It's not that they don't do a public schools night. It's not that they don't do, you know, public information night. But one of the things that, that's built into the culture of the lodge is we're going to do excellent ritual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, other, other customs that have come along, uh, you know, and that, that's, I think the lodge has to figure out if it doesn't have a plan, if it doesn't know where it's going, it's going to be like a rudderless ship in a storm. And you won't know if you got there, if you don't know what you were trying to achieve. And where you're trying to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you don't think you're going anywhere, if you're just steaming in a circle, you're probably not going to go anywhere. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think that's why lodge leadership is important. The continuity of lodge leadership is important to say, yeah, I, I'm the master of the lodge, but I want to have input from my senior warden, from my junior warden. I want the treasurer and secretary. If I say, hey, I want to do this program, I want them to be able to say, we can afford that. Or say, we're going to need to do a fundraiser to do that if we want to do that. You know, to have that kind of input and also a commitment to say, we're going to follow that program next year as well. And you only get that by working together as a team. So in connection to, because this is all, this is all good, all these points are connected. In connection to your statement of the laws being a rudderless ship, if it doesn't have these conversations, if it doesn't have a three to five year plan, and I'm, I mentioned the lodge must develop an identity. Let me ask you this, if, if every lodge, because it, it really comes down to this one thing that we're talking about right now. And that is if a lodge truly had something to offer worthwhile, where you know, at your, at your lodges, Wednesday nights, where Wednesday nights became a Wednesday night is lodge night, man. We're going to show up. Dude, do you know what they're doing? Yeah, I need to be there. If they truly had something to, to deliver like that, all the lodges, then, then we would have people just knocking and, and breaking our doors down, trying to get in. But that's not the case. You know, we're, we're trying to just retain them. Why? Well, I think I said I think a lot of it is has that is that lodge relevant to those members? Is there something that makes them want to go there? You know, it's like going uh, say, okay, well, we're going to do uh, practice tonight, and the brothers show up, and you know, yeah, we're going to have pizza, we're going to, yeah. you know, we're going to laugh and joke, we're going to have a good time, we're going to get down and do some serious ritual work. Uh, there's going to be good fellowship. Uh, there'll probably be a laugh or two because somebody will make a mistake, but you know, you're building that fellowship and being working towards that excellence. And so the lodge has to be relevant. I had, a, I had a very good friend I grew up with in law enforcement and he had two sayings in life. And I always thought of those. And it, one of them was, we've been thrown out of a lot nicer places than this. <laughs> and the other one was, we can go anywhere and be ignored. <laughs> and if if brothers aren't coming are coming to the lodge and are being ignored aren't meant to to feel that they're welcome that they're valued that they're part of the team that you're glad to see them that you are going to uh, involve them in the activities of the lodge uh, you can go somewhere else to be ignored 
<laughs> you know, if you, you want to be brought in uh, to have that feeling of belonging. And, and again, it goes down to how the leadership utilizes even the information that's coming out of Grand Lodge. Now, when you go to the masters and wardens retreats, you're, you're handed this 80 page, I, th I think it's probably bigger now, 40 page uh, booklet that or guidebook that basically takes you through the steps, how to develop lodge culture, how to develop lodge identity, how to write a three to five year plan, how to talk to your officers, not just your officers, but the membership and get them involved in the decision making process so that more and more input is is given to you so that you know which direction or more or less what direction you can go now in in into the future and hand it off to the next you know leader or a group of leaders that will come in because we're supposed to be rotating and a lot of lodges are beginning to adapt if you're going to be in these in the three principal chairs you it's it's, it's a two-year term it's a two-year term now so we can so we can promote continuity and consistency in what we're doing so we can see this thing through. So in your two years, you're going to see these two parts of the plan fulfilled. In your two years, you're going to see these parts of the plan fulfilled. So now, now the burden has been taken off of the, not only the master, but the rest of the, the officers because the plan was built together. The three to five-year plan was built together. But it's even like that is difficult to get enough members to to come in and hey we're gonna we're gonna do this let's put some thought in let's put the time and effort in so that we don't have to continue to try and reinvent the wheel which a lot of lodges try to do they try to reinvent the wheel year after year after year so yeah. what you're saying is is uh resonating with me because it's something that i've been thinking about for quite some time and and i think those ideas one they have to be conveyed to the membership so they know, hey, this is what we're trying to do. And the other thing I, I think that lodge leaders have to, to keep in mind is that occasionally you're going to try something that fails. Uh, you know, my lodge does uh, at least two shooting trips a year. And they have a ball. We go to the range. We, everybody has fun. You know, we, we, we have fun with that. Uh, they'll have, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner is always turkeys cooked at the lodge and a big turkey. I mean, there's some traditions that on Cinco de Mayo, one of the brother's wives always cooks uh, uh, Hispanic food for the lodge for Cinco. I mean, there's traditions that, that happen in there. But sometimes you try a program and it doesn't work. We tried, uh, we were going to go deep sea fishing. But by the time it actually got down to okay, put down the money, we're going this day. We didn't have enough people for the boat just for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, okay, it didn't work, but uh, there's a, there, there was a book about succeeding by failure. And what it talked about was, yeah, you're going to stumble sometimes. Things aren't going to work. But as you keep trying, things will work. And Babe Ruth hit the most home <laughs> runs one year, but he also had the most strikeouts. And those kind of things, you have to be willing to try new things. You have to be willing to step outside the box a little bit and say, okay, we had a bunch of guys say, let's try this and give it a go. Okay, it didn't work. At least you tried it. Now, uh, with, with you saying that, Vic, and that's true, um, you're not going to know what works until you failed enough, right? You got to fail and fail fast, and then you find, begin to find out what works and what doesn't. And within there, Vic, 
we cannot get so focused on that that we forget why we are doing what we're doing right because when you look at your charter because i've gotten many discussions with this with some of my uh, fellow brothers from the lodge and it had to come down to what is the what does your large charter say and the large charter says very specifically what we're supposed to be doing and anything outside of that begins to become extracurricular to what our mission is to initiate pass and raise all good men and true you know who may apply for the purpose and whom we may find worthy so some of the things that you're talking about i believe have to be consistent with that with that purpose and i think that the idea of involving the members of the lodge will support that other that other purpose of making masons bringing people into the lodge because as people are having a good time they're going to tell their friends Boy, you know what? I can't go tonight because I'm going to go to the lodge. You know, why do you go to the lodge? Well, we're going to the lodge because we do this and this and this, and, and it brings in the interest. And you're right. We have a primary focus, but we can do the other activities that support that focus. And they don't become the all, 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 be all, see all, but they are in support of the, our, main, our main purpose for the existence of a lodge. So we have to add value. There has to be a reason why we show up to lodge. Obviously, there has to be a focus. And people, people are not dumb. When they show up to a place, they know immediately if the leadership is strong or not. They'll see how the, how the officers are moving and, and, and how they're acting. And they're going to be acting according to what the direction is. This is this, boom, boom, boom. And no matter who you go to, they're going to answer you pretty much the same. And that means they're, they're, they're on board. You mentioned something about Freemasonry being work. Freemasonry is work. Can it you is. get a little bit into that? It, well, Freemasonry is work. You know, I think that we do a disservice to someone when we say, oh, if you'll become the senior deacon, there's not much to it. Don't worry about it. It's no work. Easy thing. You know, we've got it. And then you tell the brother, oh, but you do have to learn this lecture. <laughs> And OSIs and yeah, all yeah, this stuff. I just roll back in his head. I think we have to be honest and say there's a commitment. There's a commitment that on you know on degree nights, I expect you to be there for the degree. There's a commitment to learn your ritual. There's a, a commitment to commit the time and the energy and to say, okay, well, OSI, I'm gonna be at OSI. And if we have a part to do, I'm going to be prepared. You know, it's work. It's not, uh, uh, you know, there's organizations you can join where it's high. You, you paid your money, you're in, go have a beer. That's not what masonry is about. Masonry is about improving yourself, improving the community, improving your family. By improving yourself, you improve your family, your career, and your community. And that doesn't come by just standing in one place. It, it, it happens by exerting effort and working towards improving yourself, becoming a better man. You were uh, right now, we, we got hit with the pandemic. Things are opening up, but it looks like things might get reversed here soon. I hope not, but it looks that way um, with this variant and, and uh, Texas and LA, what is it, LA County? LA, Los Angeles was saying, all indoor, you have to put on a mask for all indoor 
activities. Texas just said the whole the, the, the same thing, I think, throughout the whole state. But you mentioned Zoom and new candidates. What are you seeing with that? Well, I, most of the lodging, I, I mean, when, when we had to close down the lodging, when we switched to a Zoom platform for um, the uh, business meetings, and uh, we, we started using that technology. Now, if you go back two years ago, probably 95% of the Masons had never heard of Zoom, but we embraced a new technology. And that new technology opened our way out to a lot of people who might have been hesitant to come in the door. Most of the lodges in the district and the division have several new candidates coming in because of their being able to uh, attend the Zoom meetings. And I think the Zoom meetings were informal and uh, you know, non-threatening. You could you could watch and, and get what you wanted out of it. And I think that Zoom was, has been a very good learning tool. And you know, we used it for the masters and wardens retreat. They've used it for the secretarial schools. I don't think it's going away. It's not going to be because it's not a secure system. There will never be esoteric things on it. And I personally would not want to see esoteric things on Zoom. Uh, I just think that's wrong. It's like, I've, I've heard people say, well, uh, why don't we do all the lectures and all the degrees and I can just attend it on my cell phone. Wow. Well, I'm not pledging my allegiance to a cell phone. Yeah. I, I'm pledge my allegiance to my brothers. And, uh, you know, I think it's a tool we can use. It's not the, end all for masonry. I think any, any tool that helps and has brought in a lot of people, I think that's been a good thing, but it has its place. It has its place. And, and my counter uh, to that, I do see, because in our district, like I was telling you, <clears throat> there are uh, lodges that are saying that they, they got candidates or prospects through there. The only thing I can say is that if your lodge didn't have anything before the pandemic, to offer them like you're what you were saying earlier if they don't have a focus if they don't have value then it doesn't matter how many zoom calls or it doesn't many how it doesn't matter how many candidates they ha they have lined up waiting for us to open and initiate them that lodge will continue to not have anything of value after they get initiated so the lodge all lodges have to go within all lodges have to contemplate what it is that we're doing and you were pretty much saying that earlier and you've been saying that throughout this whole interview and that is everybody has to figure out what it is that they're going to focus on and if you don't have that then all they're going to do is just keep repeating the same and expecting a different result which is you know insanity which we've seen time and time again yeah yeah i mean it's it's it it's maddening to see it uh, but it, it comes, the zoom is, it opened my eyes. I didn't like it at first. I have seen the value though, <clears throat> but I've also seen, you know, you with the zoom, you took all the excuses away from like the hall association, not to meet anyone. Cause now you can meet on the zoom and, and perform your, you know, your business duties every month. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to say this. 
Well, I looked through the bylaws and um, our bylaws say that we don't have to meet, uh, f- you know, for, uh, but four times a year, once a quarter. So we're not going to meet. So, you know, we keep looking for ways <clears throat> to not work, even with the Zoom technology that, that has opened the doors for so many things now. Well, like anything, any, any sword cuts both ways. Yeah. No getting around it. But those kind of problems are problems of leadership. And I would expect the master to say, no, we do have other things that we need to deal with. And, you know, some of it, I would much rather go to a meeting where I can shake a brother's hand and, and talk to him face to face and have a cup of coffee and that sort of thing, rather than uh, on Zoom. In fact, my rear end gets tired in Zoom meetings. I, <laughs> and there's sometimes hours and hours on end and end, you know, and it's like, oh, geez, well, these never end. I, I've, I've, I, I made a joke. I don't think it was very well received, but I could, you know, we always take a Grand Lodge uh, portrait of all the officers, you know, in our tuxedos and our jewels. And yes, I know which one. You could do it. You could do a joke one from the back and have everybody in a tuxedo top <laughs> shorts. Now, I don't think the Grand Master would buy into that idea. That that would be good though. I would like to see that. That that because you know, the way Zoom has been, you know, you only had to wear your coat and a shirt. You know, you didn't have to wear anything else for a, for a year. So talking, in, in, talking about uh, the pandemic and what happened and the shutdowns and, uh, you know, here here in California, the Grand Master issued some directives and they were confusing and there was a lot of back and forth between the constituent lodges with the, with the uh, inspectors and then AGLs wanting to know clarification, like, what does this mean? Has the Grand Master overstepped his authority to tell members what they can and cannot do in their lodge? And so we had to practice a lot of restraint. We really had to practice a lot of the three principal tenets of Freemasonry, the four cardinal virtues, temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. And we had to figure out a way really to to come back down to whether you agree with the directives of Grand Lodge or not, this is the way it's been going down. And this is the way it's going to continue, you know, for the foreseeable future until things get better. And what do you see happening if all of a sudden uh, California says, hey, we got to shut down again? What do you see happening now? Having been involved with how you know having to implement those decisions kind of thing the um, one of the things i think that a lot of the brothers didn't realize is that the grand master wasn't making a lot of those decisions the grand master has to follow the state law and if the the you know the state says you will do this he's honor bound to follow that just like the masters of the lodge are, you know, right now, look at LA. LA said, you're going back to mass. Well, Grand Master, if you look at Grand Master's opening uh, uh, declaration that he put out the rules for opening, that he said, we can reopen, you know, we're ready to go. But if your local area imposes a regulation, you have to obey that. And if you think about the obligation that the master takes when he becomes the masker is he swears to follow the civil magistrate, you know, be a good man, follow the law, follow the edicts of the Grand Lodge. And 
as much as I hated to see us not be able to have meetings, I would hate to have thought that one Mason died because somebody said, ah, I'm gonna ignore that, we're gonna have a meeting and he caught COVID and died at, at a lodge meeting. You know, I think that we have to err on the side of caution. We have to follow the, the rules, the laws that are put down by the state. And the Grand Master is in the position of, he takes that same obligation to you know, follow the civil magistrate. And so I, I can't imagine them wanting to, to say, well, we kept the lodges open contrary to the uh, public health rules and we had a spreader event and two or three guys died and someone in their family. It just would be unrealistic to do that. He has to do follow the law because that's what he's charged to do and safeguard the fraternity. So in, in our uh, degree system and uh, even before that, uh, we somehow we adopted it, but the seven liberal arts and sciences, trivium and quadrivium, and the trivium grammar, logic, and rhetoric, right? Where we are taught, and we should be in lodges, maybe it should be more of a, of a focal point uh, because of how powerful the grammar, logic, and rhetoric is. Because in grammar, you begin to really, really delve into the definition of a word, the etymology, and then logic, you begin to logically think you know, very systematically. And so, you know, uh, you would think that if we had been practicing that more, we would come to more logical conclusions and reach out, reach out to like uh, the governor reaching out to business owners and saying, hey, look, this is what's going on. We don't have all the details. We don't know what's what's really happening, but but I'm being told to do this, but I don't want to shut you down. So can what ways can can you guys come up with an effective and clean and safe way to continue to function and you know and so we so your business doesn't suffer taking these safety precautions precautionary measures is there a way i guarantee they would have put their head together and they would have said yes there's a way and let me show you how and it's the same thing in masonry is there a way well yes you know, the majority of the lodges are, have been struggling for years and years to have 10 people, you know, period, come to lodge, let alone, you know, for it to be a super spreader. So, I, you know, the grammar, logic and rhetoric, the logic behind a lot of this, a lot of these uh, rules coming down from the governor and being followed by everybody. When we think about it a lot, I think uh, I think um, there's been a lot of people saying they're, they're just not making any sense it's not clear. So what do we do? How do we get past this? How are we going to, and, and now we're at the point where you said earlier, if, if the governors try to shut down the States, there's going to be way more resistance. Now. There's my, my personal opinion is that things have been so, so I'm trying to think of a good term damaged. Yeah. Uh, injured, you know, businesses. Uh, I, I think of the school kids. When my second career was an elementary school teacher. I know I, I got some, I had kids that, that didn't learn anything for one year. I know how hard it is to try to teach them the year you're supposed to teach and go back and teach them what they didn't get the year before. Right, right. And I think that uh, the governor is probably going to look into the least restrictive ways that he can safely mandate things. 
and that's my hope, but they're politicians and we're not allowed to think about politician and religion, you know, so, so I just, yeah. as a political animal, I believe that, that they're going to try to not do that again. And I think that if they do it again, I think the general population will be resistive to the total shutdown again. Just that's my personal opinion. So in, in regards to that and related is related to that, lodges are opening up. We've been shut down for 15 months and now all of a sudden there's all this excitement and they want to do ritual. But we've been let known you're not doing any ritual until you guys are qualified. You guys are going to call your district inspector. He's going to make sure that you're at least 90% because we all know that a lot of you haven't been putting your nose into that blue cipher. So, you know, what's, you know, how do you, how do you view that? Do you agree with that? Uh, I agree with that. And it's the directions that, that I'm given and it's the directions that I give to the inspectors. Their job is to see to it that the lodge is sufficiently qualified to do a degree. And his, he has to be concerned not about just the master and the senior warden and the junior warden and the senior deacon and all the officers. And we, we haven't done anything for 13 months, maybe longer. And to think that the officers can uh, put on a tux and come on and come in and do a third degree without Lots of requalifying would be naive. Uh, I've seen some of the practices, and I can tell you that everybody's a little rusty. <laughs> everybody's going to have to get those skills back because who is the degree for? It's for that candidate. For the candidate, yeah. We want to do sloppy halfway work for a candidate. Absolutely not. He's the focus of that evening. He's only going to get one first degree, second degree, third degree. And we want to be sure that it's done. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be well done, well executed. And they, and it's the inspector's job to be sure that the lodges are capable of doing that. So if they're looking, and I know most of the lodges have degrees backed up now, then they need to be doing practices and rehearsals to be ready to do that because he's not going to give them the okay <coughs> until he sees that they're able to do that work. And, do it well. and even beyond that, uh, we keep going back or I keep going back to the same point, right? <clears throat> We've been shut down for, for all this time. I hope a lot of brothers took that time to think about why are we even doing this? Why am I going to lodge? What is the lodge going to offer? What can I do to strengthen it and improve, you know, the Masonic experience? Is this a right fit for me? Are these guys right fits for, you know, da, 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 da. I hope they took that time because yeah, you have, you have stay at home orders. The grandmaster said no official meetings, stated meetings or degrees. So why didn't you take the time at all in 12, 15 months to even open your ritual? You, you're going to have to begin to question your dedication. You were talking about dedication, commitment to keep yourself at least somewhat sharp, but now you waited till everything's back open. It's okay to go back. And you're and and you're putting yourself through this, and the district inspectors and you yourself saw you're like, whoa, no, no, you you guys need more work. There's no way, there's no way. So we all lost our focus. We all lost our focus. I think that I don't know if it was focus as much as uh, those uh, uh, 
motor skills, memory skills that come along with, with doing the degrees. And it's just, it's been a long time. Now, um, you know, I, I, I read mine. It's kind of my job to do that. And, <laughs> and uh, so, I, you know, I work on mine. I have, I have a very good friend that he does one degree. When he goes to bed at night, he does one degree from open to close and the proficiency before he goes to sleep. And, you know, that's the routine that he's in. And he finds it very peaceful and it lets him get, get to sleep and relax and that sort of thing. But there's no doubt that everybody has to brush up on those skills right now. I, I would love to see it if you could say, uh, Vic, come to our lodge. We're going to show you we've got third degree nailed down. You know, we're 95% and you show up on Tuesday night. We're going to show you that degree. I would love to see that happen. But we know that people are human beings and, you know, there wasn't any pressure. Some people work better under pressure and deadlines. So we've just got to kind of get back to that. Uh, we will. They're good brothers. They just have, have, you know, lost their focus a little bit and we need to start bringing it back again. And in your time now as a Freemason and your time as an AGL, Vic, obviously you see things in a whole different level. That's why you're there. You see a, a different perspective completely from us. What has your experience been like as an AGL? And, you know, has it been rewarding? What have been the pros and cons of this, of you being an AGL and serving California Grand Lodge in this capacity? Well, you know, you used a good, a good term there because I think sometimes people forget that the officer's job is to serve the lodge. It's not the other way around. And it's the same way for uh, the AGLs. You know, the nine of us are all responsible for our districts and being responsible for that the inspectors are trained in doing the ritual properly, that they're trained in the administrative duties. There was a time when the, AG, oh, the AGL's only duty was ritual-wise, but over the years that's changed to have administrative duties as well and help solve, uh, if lodges have problems, be able to get them the resources they need to solve those problems. And that's, I see that as, uh, you know, we're kind of, it's kind of a middle management position we make sure we, we solve the little things and anything that's major, we make sure that those above us know what those problems are and what's coming up and what we've done to uh, try to solve them. Uh, is it rewarding? Absolutely. I think anybody that ever has a chance to be an inspector should do it. Being an inspector is so rewarding because you're working every, every week with your lodgers. And you're getting to see them, the leadership grow and develop. Uh, when, I, when I first became an inspector, I went to one of my lodges uh, audit. And I watched it. And about 20 minutes in, I just kind of said, stop. <laughs> no. And, you know, it wasn't their fault that they had people that had never been trained in that process. And so I said, okay, this year is going to be a learning year. I'm going to teach you the right way to do this. And I'm gonna show you what was wrong and I'm gonna show you how we fix it. And I'm not gonna ding you. 
I'm not, you know, we're, we're at that point. This is a learning experience. I'm going to show you how to do it. The next year, they were probably 90% correct. And the following year, probably 95%. And some of that comes from uh, never having been shown the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. Having people in a position, you know, okay, you're on the auditing committee. What's that mean? You know, I mean, we put people in those positions that really don't know what that is. And you have to train them and you have to help them. But you, you get to see that growth when you're an inspector for those lodges. AGL, you're another step removed, but you get to see the inspectors, how they grow into their position and how they're helping their lodges and how their lodges bloom. And uh, very, very, very satisfying. Very satisfying to serve the Grand Lodge, to see things go well, to stop problems if there's a problem, try to, you know, to step on the little fires before they turn into, into brush fires and keep those things going good. Uh, you know, in the one degree, we talk about making friends from a distance we'd have never met any other way. And that happens all throughout masonry, but it happens uh, as, as an AGL as well. You have uh, more things to do, and, but the unfortunate thing is you have a little less direct contact with the lodgers. And unfortunately, so, sometimes you get paint, painted as a boogeyman. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, all the time. That's our natural reaction. Even when I was working in the prison, oh, here comes the lieutenant. Oh, here comes the captain. I mean, yeah, he was just taking a walk. You know, he was just trying to stay awake or whatever. So, so let let me ask you because you, you, we tend to highlight and and it's it should be that way. We tend to accentuate the positives, but you know there there is the the other side of Freemasonry and dealing with the problems and dealing with the problem children. You know, what are some of the things that, that have that you have seen? And you don't have to go into detail. I'm just, you know, where you just say, God, you know, guys, just get it. You know, just get it going. Just just, you know, start working on masonry and forget about all that. Just, you know, and, and that's the negative side of a leadership position that you're in. What, what have you seen that did you, you just like, God, that's what's holding us back or something like that? You know, one of the things we used to say in law enforcement is the problem we have to recruit from the human race. Yeah. <laughs> no matter yeah. how hard we try, there are going to be problem people that you that come into the fraternity that are a problem, or that you know have problems, and uh, there are people who've committed criminal offenses. You know, we have to deal with that. Uh, you know, there are things that violate a very strict rule that there's not much you can do with. But the things that are mistakes by lack of training, lack of understanding, uh, that, that, you know, you're trying to do something well, but it could have a, a, an unforeseen negative consequence. Those are things you can deal with. And um, I think that the inspectors and myself, we try to, to look at those things and say, okay, this happened, how can we fix it? Rather than, okay, now I've got you. You know, uh, yeah. anybody can get anybody. If you are in a position to interpret rules, you know, it, when you leave interpretations, there can be negative consequences for interpretations. And I think that, that that the, like I said, the, one, the most satisfying thing is to say, okay, somebody comes to you and said, here's what happened, we made a mistake. What can we do about it? 
Yeah, okay. To say, and for me to say, what do you think you can do about it? And to tell me, because most people, when they come to you and they know they've made a mistake, they have an idea for a way to fix it. And to be able to help them do that. Uh, you know, there's some, some bad things that have happened, you know, criminal violations. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, stuff, the guy's doing things that aren't necessarily illegal, but say we're just wrong, should have been done that way. And, you know, the, the bad thing about it is you have to deal with it. The good thing about it is uh, you can bring about a reformation and, and help them straighten things out and do it right and not have to deal with it again. Yeah. Once in a while, you'll get somebody who just, doesn't want to do that and that's another problem but 99 percent of the time you know you can deal with things uh people to people trying to help is really what the inspector's job and my job is really about there was a time uh, i can remember within uh, like 2014 there just seemed to be so many different cases of uh, brothers you know you hear you heard these stories up and down the state uh, brothers just acting out of line, violating first, second, third degrees, you know, certain portions. It wasn't anything uh, that, that can get them expelled, but it was enough to cause disharmony, you know, within the lodge. And I, I remember a friend of mine, Dave Matthews, and I were at the Masters and Wardens retreat in Palm Springs at the Riviera. And it's before John Troner became the Grand Master. So the first day there, you know, we had the hospitality suite and we're having drinks and and we bumped into John Troner. And so uh, Dave Matthews began to ask, you know, talk to him. And that came up and he says, you know, uh, most worshipful or uh, he, he was not most worshipful yet. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Almost most worshipful. Yeah. And uh, he says, the problem that I have is that we've whispered good counsel in this brother's ear. So. You know, how many times do we have to keep whispering good counsel in his ear before we choke this guy, you know, so to speak, or, you know, get him to understand to stop, to stop. And, and Troner gave a good, a good response. He gave us an example of how he took care of a situation when he was AGL, you know, before he began to climb up the ladder of the Grand Lodge officer line. And, but I don't think enough people are willing to take those stronger and, and it seems like it's the, it's the people in law enforcement that tend to take stronger stances when we just got fed up, you know, and just like, hey. Year, we spent all those years of doing that. Yeah, yeah. And, and free, Freemasonry, what I got from the brothers and I get from the brothers and continuing to talk to them is that they think that because we're a Mason, we, we don't have the right to react and we don't have the right to say what well, we got to say. No, I tell them no. You can, because we're bound by that. We got truth is a divine attribute and the foundation, you know, of every good, of every virtue to be good and true is the first lesson we are taught in masonry. So just because you're telling the truth, it doesn't mean you got to be nice about it. You just, that's what it is. And so that I think is holding a lot of lodges back and a lot of members back from really addressing situations the way they have to, when it comes to, um, you know, members of our society acting out of line all the time. How, how do you normally tend to address that? I think that when those things get to my level, I, we, the inspector and I would work out a plan on how this is going to be done. And because of that background from law enforcement is document what's been done. Um, Masons try to see the best. Hmm. I saw 
most most worshipful Shervonia, give a lodge, three final last chances. <laughs> and I love him. And he that's he's a good Mason. He kept trying to hope that this lodge would yeah. see the light, would do what it had to do. And he gave them a whole bunch of chances to do it. Because I think that's we're Masons. We want to help each other, you know. And you know, things sometimes get to the point where you, you can't do that anymore. There are certain things that happen and you know they, they're they're beyond that line you know I, I had a brother one time talking to me and uh, his hand was in a cast and i said geez how'd your hand get in the cast he said well i got in a fight with a guy and i hit him so hard i broke my hand and i said oh and i said well and he said i got arrested and this sort of thing and i said oh and i said well that doesn't sound too bad he says yeah everything was okay till i pulled my knife out and was chasing me down the street with a knife and I kind of said, don't talk, don't talk to me. Don't tell me anything. Don't, I don't want to know because I don't want to have to testify against you. Yeah. <laughs> your people that hit that, that level are going to get expelled from the fraternity. We try to help, but we have to maintain our standards. Yeah. And we see the examples at Grand Laws Communication when it's finally read off the names of who's getting expelled or who's been expelled and are trying to come back. And then, but then you, when they read off what they did, you're like, oh yeah, well, no wonder. You know, yeah. what, what made you think? And, you know, you, when you hear that at Grand Lodge, too, and you'll hear lodges will bring up a motion to let some guy back in. And that's what I heard. Having <laughs> being a back, law enforcement background, you kind of go, yeah, you got to be kidding. Me. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. I was like, what? But, but you know, that's that's their feeling for their brother that they're saying they're trying to, to help him and, you know. Okay, I, you know, I'd rather have people that 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 want to be helpful and want to help than always just be hammering somebody when when things go bad. You know, just the way that is. But you're right. You hear some things there, and you go, "Holy smoke! No, you know, there's no way that guy should be back in the fraternity." Yeah, or even or even somebody uh, trying to defend them and bring them back into the fraternity. I mean, there were some that that I heard, and I'm not going to get into details at Grand Lodge, no. but I was like. I can't believe they're even speaking on his behalf. Like this, this should be a dead issue. Certain members of that lodge should have already said, don't even bring this up. Like we've done at, at our lodge. There's been a couple of instances with some of our members that are no longer members, but we're just like, don't even bring that up. As long as we're here, don't even bring that up. We've dealt with it. It's over with, we're past that. And now we're, we're where we're at. And that's what had to happen. We did everything we could to help and, that's where we're at, you know, just deal with it. Just Well, that's, like I said, there, you know, it only takes a couple of people to bring a, to bring a motion, you know, to Grand Lodge. And that's what happens with kind of a, a democratic sort of society. So they can try and generally speaking, the brothers say, no, we're not going to have that type of person in our fraternity. And that's the end of it, you know, that's, but yeah. they're going to bring that up. I mean, uh, I won't go into details, but there's a, uh, 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 a lodge in our district that had its charter suspended. Well, I mean, th those things happen every year, right? There's always lodges that are getting their charter yeah, suspended. You know, that, that things happen and that, yeah. that certain steps have to be taken, the corrections have to be made. Uh, you know, and it's just, it's just a fact of life. Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often because usually the, the inspectors and the officers can straighten things out. But 
you know, things can things can go awry and we have to correct them when that happens. Where do you see Freemason? I know we 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 kind of talked about Tisipina, but where do you see California Freemasonry going here in these next 10, 15 years, especially now we're taking this hit from this pandemic and these lockdown orders. Where do you see our lodge? Well, I wouldn't even put it 10 years, five years from now. Where do you see our, our fraternity going? I think, you know, we had just about turned the corner to positive growth when uh, COVID came along. They had anticipated probably one more year we were going to be in the plus column. And I think because of all the people that became uh, familiar with or associated with Freemasonry through the use of Zoom and that sort of thing. I'm hoping that we're close to that again this year. The restoration program has helped a lot too. People that had, uh, you know, the lodgers that chose to participate in that where a member could, could pay $100 to come back in has helped bring the membership back as well. I think that there's a couple of things in the, in the next five-year plan that are going to be positive towards our growth as well. Uh, one is the public information campaign to get more of our name and the good things we do out before the public. Because like when, when I was asked, what do you know about the Masons? I knew they were a fraternity for men. That was about it. So I think that that's, that's one thing that, that's going to have to happen is that we need to get more out in the public. And, and you know, it's things like, yeah, participating in the parades, doing uh, community events, uh, participating in the community events, but also getting some publicity for good things we do. Uh, public schools night, awarding scholarships. Does that get in the local paper? Press Enterprise has never been our friend, our friend, but, you know, we need to make that law enforcement's friend either, I might add. But we need to be able to... <laughs> kind of uh, those inroads into, uh, and, and now newspapers you need to be old technology on YouTube. Why aren't we posting those sorts of things and inviting people to, to events using the newer technology? So I think that's coming. I think the next, the other thing that, that, that we need to do is there needs to be more of an outreach to some of the other communities in, in our community, the Hispanic community tends to be very under, underrepresented in Freemasonry. When you look at the percentage of people with a Hispanic heritage that are, that are citizens of California, high 40s, 50s. Yeah, and, and don't we have two lodges that, are, that, that have been sanctioned to give the three degrees in Spanish? Uh, so two out of 300 yeah, lodges well, in California? Yeah. So... That, I think that that's the other thing that we're going to do. That's another one of the pillars of the five-year plan is to start stretching the effort out to involve the, the other members of the other ethnic communities where we live uh, in California. I mean, uh, you know, we have Prince Hall Lodges. And when you think of how terribly those brothers were treated, I understand them having their own... Um, Masonic entities, you know. Grand and Lodge, I would, yeah. I'd certainly love to see more more brothers from the the uh, black community joining our lodges, but we have to let them know you're welcome. Same thing with the Hispanic community. We've got to start reaching out to them to bring more people into the lodges. You know, most people come in with a friend, 
hey, you know, did you hear about masonry? Oh, I'll buy you lunch, show you about it. You know, I mean, that's how people, you know, come in if you don't have a family history. And we need to start doing more outreach that way and letting the community know what we're about and who we are and, and you know, what our values are to see if, if that, that would not be a fit for them to come join us. Do you think, again, you know, we're going back and we're, we're slowly but surely opening and, and things are loosening up, hopefully more. And then you were mentioning earlier, way you know, at the beginning of this podcast, how you were brought up and the standards that that were given to you by your your father and and his friends and the co community. Where do you and, and the, the newer people coming in, they're not raised under under those types of uh, conditions. Where do you think you know we talk about tough love? Tough love, giving beginning to get just a little bit tougher with our brethren and beginning to instill the discipline. And beginning to reinforce the commitment, the discipline that it's going to take to uh, bring the fraternity back to prominence or to a position of prominence where a lot of us feel it should be. You know, tough love. I mean, should we begin to institute that? I don't know if it has to be tough love. I, I, I have an idea of tough love that, that's probably different than yours and, and someone else might have a different idea. And stuff. But to say that as new members come in, that we start working with them to talk about our principles and, and our values and, and things about, you know, we appreciate hard work. Mm. And yes, you have to dedicate yourself to learn the, these works and, and to serve the lodge and, and that sort of thing. There's no doubt that we have to let people know those are our values. I'm going to write down notes. So I'm listening. <laughs> I'm listening. But, you know, I think that we, we have to uh, help people know, uh, you know, hey, kind of this is what's expected. And also to be, you can't just tell somebody that and walk away. I think you have to be there. The mentorship is so important that, uh, you know, you've got somebody that, that will come talk to you and, and, and say, uh, uh, and, and politely and off to the side to say, uh, you know, your, your apron is always your outer piece of garment. And I noticed you wore it with your coat over it, you know, so hey, you know, we don't do it that way, we do it this way, to that, uh, you know, the gentle, you know, words in the ear to help bring those values along. I think that uh, people respond to that. I know when I taught school, I had lots of kids that didn't have a whole lot of structure when they came in, into my class, but they responded to structure. They responded to knowing, okay, at this time, we do this and we don't get up and run around the room. That's not how we do things. And at this time we do this and people respond to structure. It, it lets you become comfortable. It lets you uh, feel that sense of belonging that I, I'm really comfortable. I know where we're going and what we're doing. And I think that mentorship and just that those casual contacts in the lodge of, of taking somebody aside, not embarrassing them, you know, going, you know, saying, well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, you know, not doing that sort of thing, taking them aside and talking to them and, and showing them, you know, this is how we do things here, that they don't know, and that they will want to fit in with us, and that they will do that. So I, I don't think it has to be, uh, you know, pounded into them. I think that people naturally want to fit into the group. And what, you, what you're wanting, uh, what you're saying is that we have to define tough love, number one. 
I mean, that's what you were saying at the beginning. My tough love is not, might not be the same as yours. But I'm, when I say tough love, I don't mean embarrassing anybody. I don't know, because that's not what we're there to do. We're there to reinforce good habits. And we're there to let them know what the expectations are. And then there's a way to go about it. You know, when I played ball, baseball and football, I had some coaches that, I mean, he, they demanded excellence. And they were yelling and hooping and hollering and cussing and sometimes getting you by the face mask. Hey, you idiot, you know, you're supposed to be over here. And you responded. You're like, whoa. And we were winning. I'm not talking about that kind. Right. I'm not talking about that kind, but but something, you know, that... that I think letting them know what's expected and helping them to get there is, is an important thing. And because, you know, we've, we, we've got a generation of kids that don't know, uh, you know, oh, if somebody showed up at your lodge in a pair of shorts and flip-flops, odds are most lodges would kind of say, no, you need to go change. But if they didn't know any better because no one had ever told them, you know, that's shame on you, not necessarily shame on them. They didn't know. So, I mean, we have to teach people. We have to let them know how we do things. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of that lodge culture and, and mentorship that their, their, their coach should be somebody who's talking to them about, Hey, when you're in lodge, you know, you sit, this is why you sit over here and, and, and what, what you want to listen for and doing the signs correctly and uh, how to address a worshipful master. And I mean, all those things that you don't learn in a degree that you need to learn by someone teaching them to you and then being with you to reinforce them over time to where you internalize it and then you have it yourself. D direct contact, direct con how, how old is your lodge, Vic? Evergreen. A hundred and fifty some years. Same building? No. Originally they were downtown Riverside where the courthouse is. Okay. But it was an unreinforced masonry building and the county wanted to build a courthouse there because mm. it's right dead center downtown. So the, the current lodge opened in I think 1976. They bought five acres where it is now and built the new lodge. But the you know masons are big people on history and tradition. The columns from the old lodge were brought and put in the new lodge. So we have that history of things that we brought with us and incorporated in the new lodge. And you know the reason why I ask because if you were still in the same building, you know spirits of old brothers stay there and doors open and you hear footsteps you know i was going to ask you have you ever heard something like that at your lodge you know or where you're there and like what what was that i haven't but you know it's a big it's a big building and big buildings creak at night mm -hmm. yeah the old building is down where the newest courthouse is and uh, like i said it was completed in 76 the, the building we're in now okay that's where it started i mean you see the old past masters pictures. I mean, they're civil war officers and that sort of thing up there. You know, oh, that's pretty cool. Kind of interesting to look at the history. Uh, one of the secretaries got very interested in the, in the history of the lodge. And they went back to like early 1900, where they talked about the travel, the district's uh, divisions traveling degree team came to do a degree and people rode from Blythe on horseback come do the degree and i mean they stayed for a while with members and did it was just interesting history of, of the time and uh, the way things went and the way things have changed and that sort of thing yeah yeah interesting interesting things there yeah and and like like i said 
Uh, I know our lodge is 47 years old, and sometimes you get the distinct feeling that I'm not here alone. You know, <laughs> there's something here, you know, and it's not it, it's not an evil or, or your negative energy. You're just like, whoa, you know, the, the the hairs on the back of your neck begin to stand on end. And you're like, what the hell? You know, maybe it's time for me to get out of here. And uh, recently, when I interviewed Jerry L. Smith, you know, the South Pasadena Lodge, they got an old classic lodge. It's 120 years old. And I asked him the same thing. And he kind of didn't say nothing, you know, I just because it's when you go in there, that's what you think. You're like, whoa, wow. You know, there's something other, not just physical here. So I'm just. You, know. yeah. you think about that, the building, the current building is almost 50 years old, you know, right where it's been now. And uh, our hall association prides itself on, on maintaining the building well. It looks pretty much the way it did when I walked in in 1983. It still has, you know, we've done a lot of repairs to keep it that way. Okay. You know, Hall Association, what a job doing new air conditioning and paint and roofing and all the things they do to keep a building. Uh, yeah, I just very proud. I'm very proud of our facility in all honesty. So you, so you believe you get the feeling that um, uh, Freemasonry in California is headed in a general a positive direction. Uh, we're doing, we're doing overall uh, what's needed to be done, but individually, individual lodges have the power to create a culture of excellence, but it's up to them. Right, and I would hope that most of them would, and that the inspectors try to instill that. You know, it, it, I don't think, I mean, I try to think back, and I've seen some very good ritualists over the years, to say I ever saw a degree that every single officer was 100% perfect, I don't think so. But I've seen some that were really close. Uh, you know, even if you don't know the work yourself very well, you'll be listening to a degree and you'll hear something that just kind of makes you go, I knew that was wrong, <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, being a grand lecturer, uh, ritual is very, very important to the ritual committee and the assistant grand lecturers and the grand lecturer. And, Rituals what really separates us from a lot of the other organizations. Other organizations, you pay your bucks, you're in, you're a member now. You know, belly up to the bar, you know, you're in. Yep. And that's, that's not what we're about. And that ritual is really what separates us. Uh, I find it very peaceful. Uh, so I can, I can be listening to ritual and I hear something maybe I didn't hear once before, but uh, I can, the rest of the world goes away when I'm listening to a degree that that's what's, there and my being at that time is what's going on in the lodge. And I appreciate that. The, uh, the ritual first, second and third degrees, when you go through all of them and you really begin to pay attention to them, you know, especially being an officer's coach, that's, that's the beginning, right? I mean, you should have been studying the whole cipher once you became a senior deacon and you wanted to start learning all the, all of the ritual. But when you go through the first, second and third degrees of the ritual, you you read the lectures, you read the charges, you read the, the the master's welcoming speech, and then you go into the installation, you know, uh, charges. You begin to see Freemasonry in a whole in a wider context. There's a whole lot more going on uh, in within the world, a Masonic world, than than just showing up and and performing a degree and what have you, but lodges tend to forget about all of that. And when problems arise, very rarely have I seen any, anybody go into the blue book 
to find the solution. They begin to just go back and forth between themselves, politics, and what have you. But I believe that a lot of those problems would easily be re resolved if you just go back into the blue book and look at what the charge says you're supposed to do in first, second, and third degree. Um, Even a, a, an easy way to do that is, is having seen some conflict that, uh, that I've seen resolved by have the two brothers do the third degree obligation again. That's what Troner said. Yeah. And, and I've done that. And it works because sometimes they go, uh, and, and about the time they, they finish that up, they go, yeah, never mind. I'm messing up. Yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah. You know, that this wasn't important. Yeah. And that gets resolved. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I see where my fault was at. That's what, that's what it forces you to do. It opens up your eyes because you're forced to, to read it again. Hence why I'm saying uh, most of us don't go back to our blue book to look for the resolution within what our, you know, uh, our ceremonies are saying, our degrees and, are saying. And probably what's important. Some things that you, you think at the time you're really focused on are important that when you look in the bigger scheme of things, they really aren't. Vic, I've had a great time interviewing you today. Is there, what are you grateful for? Before we close, let me ask you that. What are you grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful that I'm a Mason. I'm grateful that I'm going to be going in in October, my fifth year as an AGL. Hey, congratulations. For my family, for my wife, my daughter, that they're healthy and everything's going well. Um, all my brothers, you know, I'm, I'm grateful the lodges have reopened and I hope so much, hope so much that we don't wind up going sliding backwards again. But uh, uh, I'm just grateful for that, the life, the brothers, you know, my family, all good things. I would like you to tell one little story before. Sure, we go. go ahead. As I told you about uh, uh, being a Mason, uh, back in about 87, my partner and I, who was a Mason, we'd gone to the Great West Gun Show down at the Pomona Fairgrounds. Big thing, thousands of vendors, thousands of people buying things. And he and I both went to buy a couple hundred dollars worth of reloading supplies. Lady sitting at the table, nice lady. And we said, I said, uh, uh, I have ID, I have credit cards, but will you take a check? And she said, I don't take checks, but I'll take a check from both of you. And, and I kind of said, why? And she pointed to our Masonic belt buckles. And she said, I know what that means. I know you won't cheat me. I know what it means. And those are the kind of things that make make me over time to say, I'm gonna live up to those Masonic ideals because people know what it means to be a Mason and I'm gonna live every day trying to, to live to those ideals. And it was just kind of one of those lessons that stuck with me from a long time ago, but I still, it's still there in my memory. I can remember it vividly as if it was yesterday. Well, uh, stories like that, you know, are, are not uncommon, but that one was a great one. That's a great example of uh, obviously how Freemasonry was being viewed back then, right, uh, in that time, because of the people that came before us and established this reputation amongst ourselves. Uh, so, yeah, great story. And uh, thank you for sharing, uh, you know, what you're grateful for. At this point, I would like to just acknowledge you and thank you for the service you've given, the craft, the service you've given us for our public safety when you were 
out there roaming the streets and then trying to uh, solve crimes of murder cases and things, things like that. Also uh, educating our youth at one point and continuing to step up uh, in these leadership roles over and over and over again. It seems to have never stopped for you. And now you're an AGL showing us the way. And you said there's only nine AGLs in Grand Lodge. Okay. So, so uh, I acknowledge that and I thank you uh, for that, Vic. And I thank you for coming onto the show, sharing with us, you know, your, your insights, your knowledge, your wisdom, and some, uh, you know, words of, uh, of encouragement for all of California Masons and whoever else is going to be listening. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right, Vic. And I hope to have you back soon. Um, you know, when you're not so busy, I'll work you back into the schedule because I want a progress report. I want to see what's going on with the Grand Lodge and with you and, and how you, uh, you know, continue to keep yourself in good shape. It looks like you stay in, in good shape. Like outdoors, bicycling, all those sorts of things. Yeah, you can tell. You can tell you're in good condition. You know, you're, you're, uh, you look strong. You, you still walk upright, and that's a big bonus. Yeah, the, the, the alternative is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Vic. Thank you. This has been Masonic Muscle, everyone. This has been another exercise in speculation and critical thinking until we meet again. Thank you. <laughs>